The Senate will return Monday and stay in session through Thursday. The House will return Tuesday and stay in session through Friday. This week in the House, the House will return on Tuesday with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to consider three bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday and for the balance of the week, the House will be considering H.R. 2670, the National Defense Authorization Act. This bill has passed every year for more than 60 years, and despite the fact that more than 1,400 amendments have been filed to the bill, I fully expect it will pass again this year. This week in the Senate, the Senate will return today with first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on cloture on the nomination of Oxichil Torres-Small to be Deputy Secretary of the Department of Agriculture. Then, based on the Majority Leader's cloture filings, I would anticipate we will see votes on the nominations of Rosemary Hidalgo to be Director of the Violence Against Women Office at the Department of Justice, Kimberly Catherine Evanson to be a U.S. District Judge for the Western District of Washington, and Tiffany M. Cartwright also to be a U.S. District Judge for the Western District of Washington. Now, just briefly, a little more on the NDAA. President Biden and Speaker McCarthy, in their debt ceiling negotiations, agreed to spend $886 billion in fiscal year 2024 on national defense. Now it's time to figure out just how that money is going to be spent. How much on planes, how much on tanks, how much on salaries and wages and the like. But because the Senate and the House are controlled by different parties, the two chambers have different thoughts on spending priorities, and consequently, the two chambers have put together different bills to reach that number. Passing the bill through both houses and then reconciling the differences in a conference committee will be complicated. The process will begin this week in the House. The proposed legislation includes a 5.2% pay increase for members of the military. That's the highest yearly bump since 2002. Now let's talk about the spending fight to come continued. You will recall that last time we spoke, we discussed the government's funding fight to come. The Senate Appropriations Committee had just finished its work on the spending cap for discretionary spending and had set that cap at $1.586 trillion. That's the amount agreed to by President Biden and Speaker McCarthy in their debt ceiling negotiation. That had followed by a week the same exercise in the House Appropriations Committee, which had set the overall discretionary spending cap at a level about $120 billion lower than the ceiling called for in the debt ceiling agreement. So the die was cast. The Senate is set to pass appropriations bills at a level higher than the appropriations bills that will be passed by the House. Now comes a letter from the House Freedom Caucus to Speaker McCarthy. Sent on July 7, the letter says bluntly, quote, we write to inform you that we cannot support appropriations bills that will produce a top-line discretionary spending level barely below the bloated FY 2023 level, parenthesis, already grossly increased by the lame duck omnibus spending bill we all vehemently opposed a mere six months ago, end quote, and effectively in line with the cap set by the debt ceiling deal that we opposed and was supported by more Democrats than Republicans. Instead, we expect all appropriations measures, as laid out at the beginning of the 118th Congress, to be in line with the enacted FY 2022 top-line level of $1.471 trillion. The letter continues. 
Accordingly, please be advised that, one, we plan to vote against any appropriations bills designed to achieve the approximately $1.586 trillion top-line spending level. Two, we expect baseline appropriations to match the enacted FY 2022 $1.471 trillion level. Three, we urge you to hold floor consideration of any appropriations measure until all 12 bills have been reported out by the Appropriations Committee and we, along with all Americans, can assess total spending levels and their impact. Four, we urge you to expand upon your leadership to publicly reject the possibilities of an omnibus appropriations measure or supplemental Ukraine appropriations bill and look forward to working with you to ensure that neither happens. This is going to be a bruising battle. Nothing can become law if it cannot first pass the House. So the HFC and its allies have leverage. But nothing can become law if it cannot also pass the Senate. So the HFC's leverage over this matter is limited. And President Biden gets a say too, because nothing can become law without his signature. Now let's go to Supreme Court rulings. Last week was the last week of the session for the Supreme Court, and we got a number of rulings on cases of deep significance. First up was Tuesday's ruling in the case of Moore v. Harper, a congressional redistricting case out of North Carolina, in which a 6-3 opinion authored by Chief Justice John Roberts found that the state's Supreme Court had not overstepped its authority when it struck down as overly partisan a congressional redistricting plan. The ruling fundamentally rejects the notion of an independent state, uh, an independent state legislature. The ruling in which, in addition to Roberts, the three liberals on the court were joined by Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, quashes the argument that the Constitution, in assigning to state legislatures the task of setting the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives, implicitly removed the state legislature's responsibility to obey their own state constitutions. Wrote Roberts in his majority opinion, the Elections Clause does not vest exclusive and independent authority in the state legislatures to set the rules regarding federal elections. And the Elections Clause does not insulate state legislatures from the ordinary exercise of state judicial review. That principle, he wrote, predated the U.S. Constitution itself, and he pointed to precedents from the 1780s when various state courts struck down laws violating their own state constitutions. Justice Thomas strongly dissented. He was joined by Justice Neil Gorsuch and in part by Justice Samuel Alito. Thomas argued that the case should have been dismissed as moot because the North Carolina Supreme Court earlier this year reversed its previous decision in validating the congressional map under its own state constitution wrote Thomas of the North Carolina Supreme Court's decision to reverse itself, that ruling means the issue is, quote, indisputably moot, and today's majority opinion is plainly advisory, end quote. On Thursday, the Supreme Court handed down a decision in two cases it had combined, in which both Harvard University and the University of North Carolina were being sued for using racial preferences in their admissions policies. 
In a 6-3 ruling, the court ruled unconstitutional the consideration of race in university admissions, thereby removing one of the key tools the nation's most elite universities, both public and private, have used to diversify their student bodies. The majority opinion was written by Chief Justice Roberts. For too long, he wrote, universities have concluded wrongly that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. Our constitutional history does not tolerate that choice." End quote. The majority opinion went on to say that admissions offices could consider, quote, an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. The difference, he noted, is that the student must be treated based on his or her experience as an individual, not on the basis of race. Roberts has a history on this issue. In a 2007 opinion, he wrote just two years after becoming Chief Justice, he wrote, the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. On Friday, the court ruled in the case of 303 Creative LLC v. Elenis that a Christian web designer cannot be forced to create a wedding website celebrating the marriage of a same-sex couple. It's important that we understand that this ruling does not mean, as many on the left are saying, that the court has now ruled that a public company can deny its services to gays because they're gay. That is not what this ruling says. Justice Neil Gorsuch, writing for the majority, held that the web designer's work constitutes speech. The state of Colorado, he wrote, cannot compel her to express herself, that is, to speak, in a way that violates her own deeply held beliefs. Quote, Colorado seeks to force an individual to speak in ways that align with its views, but defy her conscience about a matter of major significance. But as this court has long held, the opportunity to think for ourselves and express those thoughts freely is among our most cherished liberties and part of what keeps our republic strong." End quote. This is very important to understand. The majority opinion took the point of view that the case was about a free speech claim, not a free exercise of religion claim. In fact, the web designer had asked the court to consider both claims, but the court rejected the free exercise claim. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, writing for herself and the other two liberal justices in a strongly worded dissent, demonstrated she fails to understand the majority's reasoning. Quote, Today, the court, for the first time in history, grants a business open to the public a constitutional right to refuse to serve members of a protected class, she wrote, totally incorrectly. Also on Friday, the Supreme Court ruled in the case of Biden v. Nebraska. That's the case where six states sued the Biden administration to stop its absurd student loan debt cancellation scam. In a 6-3 decision, the majority of the court struck down Biden's action, stopping more than 40 million borrowers from receiving a benefit from their fellow taxpayers that no one, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi included, had previously thought possible. Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the majority, quote, the Secretary of Education asserts that the HEROES Act grants him the authority to cancel $430 billion worth of student loan principal. It does not, he wrote. 
We hold today that the act allows the secretary to waive or modify existing statutory or regulatory provisions applicable to financial assistance programs under the Education Act, not to rewrite that statute from the ground up. Roberts' opinion also invoked the Major Questions Doctrine. The HEROES Act, he wrote, provides no authorization for the Secretary's plan even when examined using the ordinary tools of statutory interpretation, let alone clear congressional authorization for such a program. You will recall that as part of the debt ceiling negotiations, President Biden and Speaker McCarthy agreed, and the Congress passed, and the President signed into law, that interest on student loans will once again begin accruing in September, and payments will resume in October. But we are not done with this issue. The hard left and the Democrat Party really think student loan debt should be assumed by the taxpayers. And they weren't even satisfied with Biden's plan to have the government pay off $10,000 in student loan debt, or $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients, for singles making $125,000 or less, or families making $250,000 or less. They wanted him to have the government assume $30,000 per debtor. And they only kept their mouths shut when he first announced his program because they figured it was better politically to put forth a united front. But now that the Supreme Court has struck down his plan, they're already loudly pushing for what they've really wanted all along, even more debt relief. So stay tuned on this one. Biden is likely to find another promise to make to young people who are a key part of the base of the Democrat Party. This campaign promise was all about mobilizing them for the 2020 election. And having failed to keep this promise, he'll need to come up with something else to mobilize them for the 2024 election. Now to cocaine at the White House. Last Sunday evening, the White House was evacuated for security reasons after the discovery of a bag filled with a white powder. The contents of the bag were later determined to be cocaine hydrochloride, otherwise known as powdered cocaine. According to the Secret Service, the cocaine was found by members of the Uniformed Division of the Secret Service conducting routine rounds throughout the building. There have been multiple and conflicting reports about where exactly the cocaine was found. NBC's Andrea Mitchell reported on Thursday, quote, It was found, by my observation, in a much more secure place, a limited access place, in that West Wing reception area. It's still a publicly trafficked, a frequently trafficked place, but it's down near the Situation Room, right off West Executive Drive, down below. And normal people, just average people, just can't get in there, she said. The news broke on Tuesday, the 4th of July. On Wednesday, the House Oversight Committee requested a briefing from the Secret Service on the service's security procedures at the White House. Now to Russia and Ukraine. Thirty-nine years ago, on the 40th anniversary of the Normandy invasion that began the liberation of Europe from Nazi Germany, Ronald Reagan stood above the cliffs at Pont du Hoc and gave one of the seminal addresses of his presidency. It is better to be here, ready to protect the peace, he declared, than to take blind shelter across the sea, rushing to respond only after freedom is lost. We've learned that isolationism never was and never will be an acceptable response to tyrannical governments with an expansionist intent. 
A June poll for the Ronald Reagan Institute reveals that, by and large, Americans continue to agree with Reagan's beliefs in peace through strength. Fully 92% of Republicans, 81% of independents, and even 79% of Democrats say they agree that a strong American military is essential to maintaining peace and prosperity, both at home and abroad. Nearly 60% of Americans, 58% to be precise, oppose cutting spending on the military to reduce the federal budget deficit. That includes 70% of Republicans. On the other hand, increasing the defense budget has the support of 71% of survey respondents, including 85% of Republicans, 74% of independents, and 57% of Democrats. According to the survey, 76% of respondents say it's important to the United States that Ukraine wins the war against Russian aggression, including bipartisan supermajorities of both Democrats at 86% and Republicans at 71%. Overall, a strong 59% majority support sending military aid to Ukraine. That's 75% among Democrats and 50% among Republicans. On the flip side, 30% of survey respondents said they oppose sending U.S. military aid to Ukraine. That's 41% among Republicans, 39% among independents, and 17% among Democrats. Fully 57% of those who oppose sending military aid to Ukraine say the most important reason they oppose it is that we have too many unmet needs here at home to be sending billions of dollars to Ukraine. On a related note, on June 29, former Vice President Mike Pence became the first Republican candidate for president to visit Ukraine. Now to the First Amendment versus big tech and big government. The Supreme Court wasn't the only place where significant legal events were happening last week. On Tuesday, U.S. District Judge Terry Doughty, a federal district judge in Louisiana nominated by President Trump, granted a preliminary injunction to the plaintiffs in a case where the attorneys general of Louisiana and Missouri are challenging a wide swath of communications between officials of the federal government and key social media companies. Under the order, officials at the Department of Health and Human Services, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Department of Justice, the State Department, and the FBI are barred from communicating with social media companies, including Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. At issue is what the attorneys general call a campaign of censorship in which the Biden administration allegedly coordinated and colluded with social media platforms to identify disfavored speakers, viewpoints, and content. Under the injunction, government officials are prohibited from calling, emailing, sending letters, texting, or meeting with social media companies for the purpose of urging, encouraging, pressuring, or inducing in any manner the removal, deletion, suppression, or reduction of content containing protected free speech posted on social media platforms. There's a loophole in the ruling. Government officials are still allowed to be in contact with the social media companies about criminal activity, national security threats, threats to public safety, and social media posts intending to mislead voters about voting requirements and procedures. Democrats and the media predictably went nuts. The New York Times, in its report that is not an opinion piece, but its actual reporting on the event, led with this, quote, 
A federal judge in Louisiana on Tuesday restricted the Biden administration from communicating with social media platforms about broad swaths of content online, a ruling that could curtail efforts to combat false and misleading narratives about the coronavirus pandemic and other issues, end quote. Of course, it shouldn't be surprising that the New York Times continues to hold on to the fiction that what came out of the CDC for years was accurate. So don't be surprised that the gray lady thinks this ruling could complicate efforts to combat false and misleading narratives. Now to the U.S. envoy to Iran, mishandling classified documents. Robert Malley, the Biden administration's point man on Iran, that is, the man who's been leading Biden's effort for the last two-plus years to try to get Iran back into the Obama-negotiated Iran nuclear deal, has been placed on official leave. For the last several weeks, he has been without a security clearance. According to Semaphore Media, Mali stopped performing his most important duties more than a month ago. But it was just last Thursday that the State Department officially announced that he was on leave. Then, on Friday, Semaphore reported that the case had taken a more serious turn when it revealed that the State Department had turned over the investigation to the FBI. As we were all reminded for years during the so-called investigation of alleged collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, the FBI does not investigate people. It investigates potential crimes. The FBI's involvement in the investigation is bad news for Malley because it seems to indicate that investigators are considering something beyond low-level mishandling of documents. We'll stay tuned on this one. Now to the latest on the Biden crime family saga. Hunter Biden's cat is out of the bag, and the complications have just begun. First up, on Tuesday, June 27, one week after Hunter Biden's plea deal was announced, the Wall Street Journal ran an op-ed penned by Eileen J. O'Connor, who headed the U.S. Department of Justice's tax division from 2001 to 2007 in which she calls for the judge who's going to handle the plea agreement to throw it out. Judges can reject plea agreements, she writes. That would be an appropriate disposition here. And Congress, in fulfillment of its oversight obligation, must learn and share with the American public what evidence the IRS gathered, what evidence its agents weren't permitted to obtain, and what charges might have been brought if they had. Second, Also on Tuesday, June 27, Punchbowl News reported that Attorney General Merrick Garland is scheduled to testify before the House Judiciary Committee on September 20. This will be the first time Garland has testified before the committee since Representative Jim Jordan became the committee's chairman. Third, on Wednesday, June 28, the chairman of the House Judiciary, Ways and Means, and Oversight and Accountability Committees said they will investigate the federal government's handling of the investigation into Hunter Biden's activities. Quote, politicization and misconduct at the Department of Justice and IRS during the investigation into Hunter Biden reveal a two-tiered system of justice and unequal application of the law, end quote, said Representatives Jim Jordan, Jason Smith, and James Comer. The three chairmen demanded in letters to Attorney General Garland, IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel, and Secret Service Director Kimberly Cheadle that more than a dozen employees of the IRS, the Department of Justice, and the Secret Service be made available for questioning. 
The lawmakers said they anticipate seeking testimony from other government employees. Fourth, a group of Republican senators and representatives have written to special counsel Henry Kerner to ask him to discipline IRS and DOJ officials who they say have retaliated against the two IRS whistleblowers. Further, say the lawmakers, DOJ officials and IRS officials failed to inform the two whistleblowers about their right to make their allegations. House Ways and Means Chairman Jason Smith, House Oversight and Accountability Chairman James Comer, Senate Budget Committee Ranking Member Chuck Grassley and Investigations Permanent Subcommittee Ranking Member Ron Johnson co-signed the letter last week. They've asked for a briefing from Kerner by July 19th. Fifth, on a related note, the left is beginning to get antsy over Joe and Jill Biden's refusal to acknowledge their seventh grandchild, the daughter of a union between Hunter and a woman he met during his crack-smoking years. Hunter denied paternity, but a paternity test settled that matter. For years, he's been paying child support, and he recently went to court to renegotiate, that is, slash, the terms of the child support payments. He agreed to send his daughter, whom he has never met, several of his paintings, and he agreed to a new monthly payment. In exchange for the girl's mother agreeing to drop her request that the girl's last name be changed to Biden to reflect the proper familial connection. A week ago, the New York Times ran a front-page piece noting that official White House talking points insist that the Bidens have six grandchildren, even though they have seven. This weekend, one of the Times' mainstay columnists, Maureen Dowd, the siren voice of the conventional wisdom, headlined her column, It's Seven Grandkids, Mr. President, and then devoted her essay to an argument against Biden's refusal to acknowledge the existence of his granddaughter. This is not a political issue, she writes. It's a human one. Joe Biden's mantra always has been that the absolute most important thing is your family. It is the heart of his political narrative. Empathy, born of family tragedies, has been his stock in trade. Callously scarring his daughter's life just as it gets started undercuts that. As Katie Rogers, a Times White House correspondent, wrote in a haunting front-page piece last weekend about Hunter's unwanted child, Dowd wrote, Biden is so sensitive, quote, that only the president's most senior advisors talk to him about his son, unquote. Rogers said that, quote, in strategy meetings in recent years, aides have been told that the Bidens have six, not seven, grandchildren, unquote. Jill Biden dedicated her 2020 children's book to the six grandchildren. The president's cold shoulder and heart is counter to every message he has sent for decades, and it's out of sync with the America he wants to continue to lead. This is a devastating piece because, as Dowd points out, it goes right to the heart of Joe Biden's political narrative, his so-called love of family. This is the kind of issue that could begin to get traction in a way most policy issues don't, because it's so simple to understand. And his current position on the issue, that is, refusing to acknowledge his grandchild, is so at variance with his long-held sympathetic family man image. Nothing is as important to determining victory or defeat in a presidential campaign as is a candidate's ability or inability to control his own image. Stay tuned on this.
And that's our Washington Report for this week.